Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Marnie Feuerman, a licensed clinical social worker and marriage and family therapist, for part one of their discussion on how our attachment history impacts our partner choices. As a quick note, this discussion was recorded before Dr. Feuerman's book was released. It is out now, and we have a link to her book at tkcchattock.org under the podcast tab. So welcome back, everybody, to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am really thrilled today about my interview. We are going to be talking um, about our attachment history and how that impacts our relationships. And I have Dr. Marnie Foyerman here, um, who is going to be talking about that with us. Welcome, Dr. Foyerman. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, and I, I want to mention right away that uh, I, you have a book releasing April 2nd, and we can tell folks a little bit more about that um, at the end of our interview, but I have to share the title right now because it's quite interesting and catchy. Uh, Ghosted and Breadcrumbed. Stop falling for unavailable men and get smart about healthy relationships. Yes. 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 So if you could, um, could you give our listeners just a little bit of background about your work and uh, how you, you took up this topic and decided on this book? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm trained as one of my specialties is couple therapy. Um, I, I uh, am certified in emotionally focused couples therapy, so I'm sure you've heard of it. A lot of your listeners, I'm sure, have heard of. Yes, and a lot of us, and a lot of us love. <laughs> yes, yes, grounded in attachment theory, and so um, learning about attachment and becoming trained just, I, I feel, just opened up a whole world for me in how to help people, even if it's helping people individually, because um, people's histories and their childhoods and the impact of attachment affects them throughout their lives. It affects them certainly in their partner choices, but also um, the way they parent and the way they interact with people and so many different ways. And so um, I, when I was, I had always wanted to write a book, but of course, you need a really good idea you know, for, for the book and something that's original that maybe hasn't all already been done or written about. And I blog a lot. I do a lot of, I put a lot of content out online and um, I had a few articles that were very popular. They were very heavily viewed and shared. And the topic was on about women who, um, are involved in a relationship with somebody who's married. So technically someone who isn't available. They're already in a committed relationship. Mm -hmm. Another article was about people in emotionally abusive relationships. Um, and so, and there were a few others that were just similar that were about single women really struggling with their partner choice or they're stuck in a situation or they feel stuck and they really haven't made the best decision maybe in um, who they've decided to commit to or fall in love with. Uh, and so I thought, gosh, I got to write something about that, that I could also use my experience in working with couples 
and all that I know about what makes a relationship work, what makes one not work so well, uh, the, the dynamics and patterns people get stuck in. And I thought I could really help women who are trying to find love. They're trying to find the right partner. They're trying to, they're seeking emotional connection and someone they can really rely on and count on for the rest of their lives. And I really wanted to um, put out something that, that was a resource for them so that they can understand their patterns um, and make really healthy choices for themselves. And I would, another, another element of this was seeing women in my practice who were very successful often, you know, very attractive, successful, a lot of things going for them, but they were really struggling with their relationship or they had a partner that they, you know, that it just wasn't a good uh, dynamic between them. They were really struggling or they felt like maybe they weren't treated well. And, and so I would see this over and over. So I thought, this is the book I got to write. And of course, I needed a, a bit of a catchy title. <laughs> People would actually pick it up and look at the back and, uh, and say, oh, this sounds interesting. What's this about? And then hopefully see, you know, see some of what, what's in there, maybe look at the table of contents and decide, oh, wow, this is for me. I really need this. This will help me. And even as I was you know, talking about the book, because it's been a long journey, you know, when, you, when you go to put out a book, it, it takes a while. And someone would always say to me, oh, I know someone like that, or that's me. I struggle with that. So they either knew somebody or had a friend or someone they cared about struggling with this kind of a situation with just one bad choice after the next, um, or they themselves really, you know, they would say, hey, I, I really need that. And so I knew I was onto something. Good. Yeah. It sounds like you, you really hit a nerve there with, you know, some of the blogs and things that you were putting out and were able to really see a need. And, you know, I really like what you were sharing about an understanding of attachment theory. It then begins to really shape all of our thinking. It's sort of another, it's sort of a different lens that we're looking through in terms of understanding behaviors with our children in romantic relationships and you know it is it is a different lens that that we look through isn't it oh yes absolutely and we don't it's in our implicit memory so it's yes. in our, it's in our unconscious part of our minds so we're not so aware of it yet and when we can begin to become aware of what's happening and why, that's when we can start making changes. We, we start to recognize the patterns or the blocks or what's keeping us stuck. And so a lot of this isn't, we can't just, uh, you know, magically have the insight about it or make right. changes. So, uh, right, you know, the way, it, the way it shows up is that you just keep doing things that you don't wanna do and you don't know why. <laughs> right, right, a lot of people will say, you know, they'll start to get a sense that they're maybe doing something wrong or not right, or why do I make these choices? So yeah, they begin with that, but then the, um, the process of understanding what it is and why, I mean, that's, a, that's the heart of what we do a lot just in therapy in general. Um, but I think really going more the attachment lens um, really helps us develop that coherent narrative as to what's happened to us and why and how to right. 
Right. Yes. Yes. And, and so could you share some, you know, how you then take um, that understanding of attachment and implicit memory and perhaps adult attachment patterns and, you know, have brought that together for this work in this book? Sure. Um, well, certainly I, uh, I summarize the different, you know, attachment styles, you know, mm -hmm. and how we develop them. Yes. Uh, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into with that because I'm sure you've spent a lot of time, you know, on a lot of different podcasts talking about. Yeah. That. Well, you know, maybe just from a, um, the perspective, just a, 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 a brief overview from your perspective in working with couples, um, and relationships. Sure. Well, um, there's, there's secure attachment, which is obviously what we all wish we had or strive for <laughs> um, at some point we want to feel securely attached which essentially means that we've had someone consistent from you know from the time we're born um we're wired to connect we're and we can't take care of ourselves right so we rely on a caregiver we rely on someone being there for us who's attuned um they are aware of when we are in distress when we have a need when something's wrong, you know, as a baby, of course, I'm talking about as a baby or an infant, mm -hmm. and they respond to that, and they're consistent in their response, mm -hmm. and so when it hasn't been consistent, or it hasn't been there, we can develop one of three insecure attachment styles, um, and the names change a little bit different depending on whether we're talking about a child or an adult, but in a child, um, if if it's been inconsistent or absent, that responsiveness, we can develop an anxious or preoccupied style where we're mm -hmm. constantly seeking that reassurance and we can become more clingy and needy. And even when we get it, sometimes we're not even, we still have a lot of self-doubt. Right. Or, okay, you know, it's almost like gambling where, okay, you get the reward, but then you keep trying more and more and more because you know you're going to get that reward again. And so that's a little bit of the feeling of somebody with an, with an anxious style. Mm -hmm. And then we have the avoidant style, um, which is where if the caregiver really wasn't present, wasn't engaged, wasn't attuned, um, and they ignore us for the most part, we tell ourselves, okay, no one's going to be there anyway, so I may as well just take care of myself. We minimize the importance of needs and feelings um, because nobody really helped us make sense of them. No one responded to them. So we really just learn to be sort of an island um, mm -hmm. and not really reach out and not really um, ask, for, ask for help. Um, and then the third the third insecure style is called disorganized as it in, a, in childhood we call it disorganized as an adult we use the term fear, fearful avoidant and this often results when we've had an abused caregiver so the um so we develop a, a, a lot of mistrust uh, we may have experienced trauma um we're really uh, very uncomfortable in relationships because there's some sense of i know i'm supposed to um trust this person but at the same time people i've trusted have caused me a lot of harm and so there's a lot of vacillation back and forth between a desire for intimacy but fear of it at the same time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so that 
Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so I, I always, I'm finding this interesting in terms of how um, people who work with couples write about this with adults, because in coding the adult attachment interview, we call that unresolved. Um, we don't call it fearful avoidant. Um, so that, that's been a little confusing to me that people are naming that classification in, in that way. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but. <clears throat> yeah, you know, the terms can definitely be confusing. It even took me a while to realize, oh, they call it this for a child, but they call it this for an adult. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I would love for the, yeah, the terminology to be consistent. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I might have heard that, that term before. But yeah, generally, I, I in my training, it's not commonly used. So that's yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, I think what's probably mo more important even than the terms, though, because we can get yes. really lost in the clinical side right. of it. Right. Is is just for people to kind of know. Okay, if I have if I have an insecure style, mm -hmm. I have to understand my coping strategies that what yes. I did cope maybe as a child. Mm -hmm. um, for example, an avoidant learns to turn down the volume, crank mm -hmm. it down, turn down mm -hmm. their needs and their, um, and their feelings and not, mm -hmm. not tune into them. Mm -hmm. uh, how is that playing out in my adult romantic relationship? Because that's when it gets re-triggered. It comes yes. right again to the surface. And so what might have worked for somebody long ago suddenly is totally failing in their relationship. It's not working well. And they don't understand what it means when, when their partner is saying, I want to know how you feel. <laughs> I want to know what's going on inside. I want to know your inner world. Um, oh, you look, you know, you kind of look unhappy. What's going on? And then mm -hmm. they hear, I don't know. And it drives them crazy. And, and so this is, I, I would say, just having an understanding of these coping strategies and now how they're not really working well. In fact, they're creating a lot of distance. Mm -hmm partners. And, um, and certainly, you know, what tends to happen almost like magnetically, people with the more anxious style link up with people with the more avoidant style, and they, and they get in these perpetual loops, where, the, you know, which I'm sure you've heard a lot about the anxious mm -hmm. person is constantly seeking reassurance from an avoidant who really doesn't know how to give it. And so the avoidant pulls away, and the more the avoidant person pulls away, the more the anxious person seeks the, the closeness. Mm -hmm. And then they keep going round and round and round, and it really creates a lot of distress uh, between couples. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that whether we call it pursue distance, whatever we want to call yeah. it, you know, that this has been written about over the years, sometimes through an attachment lens and sometimes not sometimes in other ways, but I mean, I definitely agree with you. It's a very familiar dance because the, the one person's behavior is triggering the other person because they sort of want the opposite. <laughs> um, yes. More comfortable with the opposite, you know, like, um, so yeah. So it's, it's, it is a common dynamic. And a lot of times, you know, people will ask me, well, dang it, isn't this a gender thing? You know, isn't this like men are this way and women are this way? I say, not necessarily. What do you say to that? I would say that I think we are all born with the same capacity to um, 
speak in a language that's, um, you know, from, from more of the emotional place to have more of the emotional intelligence to tune into ourselves and know what we feel and how to ask for it. I feel like we're all born with that, but I think, um, I think maybe socialization, society, culture, there's a lot of things that are then going to impact um, what happens from there on, just like it impacts, let's say, self-esteem. Like if you look at children and you see them playing together, um, children don't care, you know, with, whether someone's black or brown or they don't care um, you know, ab about those things. They, uh, they usually freely speak their minds. Uh, they wear their heart on their sleeves. They usually have very good self-esteem, you know. Um, so uh, somewhere along the way, different life experiences and certainly um, your, your family of origin impacts that. And so I think, I think we tend to tell men that it's not manly and it's weak to show your emotions and, and speak about your emotions or cry or, you know, all of those things. And so women um, do that and they get a lot of approval for that. And women tend to then be more relational and there tends to be more depth to their relationships and they have more friendships. And, um, and so I feel like that things impact the ability to do that and do that safely and get the message that it's okay mm -hmm. and get a very negative message about that. Um, and I think women then will, um, it kind of becomes a little almost like it's feminized or something right? to share, um, to share emotions. And, um, and so that, but that is really the glue that I think keeps couples together. It's that there's, uh, there's depth, to the relationship and that comes from expressing things on a deeper level and expressing emotion. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think even now we have, we have a term that has been recently uh, put out there called toxic masculinity. And I think we're talking a little bit about, you know, that element too. We're trying to, to teach men that it's okay to be vulnerable. You don't have to be, you know, strong and stoic all of the time. And I think the quality of your, of, of your relationship is going to be, you know, dependent on, on that. And you don't, you don't have to be like, I tell, I tell my couples uh, a lot in practice, especially, um, especially the men. I say, you don't have to be Shakespeare. This doesn't have to be a Nick Nicholas Sparks novel. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, but that you can tune in more to, um, what's happening, your emotions, your needs, and be able to seek them from your partner and to develop that closeness and that connection by being more open to that. And so women are usually the ones I think that reach out for the appointments. You know, they're the ones more likely to come in because again, it's, it's more socially acceptable for women to do this. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they're bringing the man in and it's like, I'm, I'm having to open up a whole new world for him um, that it's okay to do this. And this is maybe why you're getting stuck. Um, but at the same time, I don't want, I don't want it to feel like I'm siding with the woman either. So sometimes I'm trying to help her understand this is the way he's coped, whether it's from his childhood or what society has taught him, these strategies and these things that he's using are, aren't personal to you. He's not purposely trying to push you away. He's just doing what he knows. And so I'm, I, for the woman, it's, it, they develop this, you know, sort of insight about um, that, okay, it's not so personal. It's not that he 
wants to not be close to me or wants to push me away, um, that he just doesn't really know maybe how to do this or he doesn't have the language to do it, um, which we call like emotional fluency. He doesn't know how to articulate his feelings as well. And so she allows a little more bandwidth for him to, to move into that realm and do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, and so what were, you know, as you put your, your book together, what, what were some common themes that you were seeing happen um, and women you were seeing in your practice? You know, they, they had a history of this and now they seem, that seemed to impact them doing this, you know, in terms of our idea of how our attachment history affects partner choices. Certainly. Um, I would see, you know, a couple of different things. Sometimes there would be um, like what I would term as a little Freudian, but like a repetition compulsion (laughs) (laughs) defense mechanism where um, the what's a similar situation to what they grew up with starts playing out in their partner choices. So if they had, let's say, a parent who was um, an alcoholic or an addict, mm-hmm. or a parent who was abusive, um, particularly if it was the opposite sex parent. So if it was a woman having a parent, like a father who was an alcoholic, um, suddenly she's finding herself in one relationship after the next with an alcoholic or an addict. Um, so kind of repeating it because it feels um, familiar or comfortable. And when I say that, I don't mean she enjoys it or likes it, (laughs) but that there's something that just kind of feels right because that's what she's used to. That's what she grew up with. Um, And I think part of it's that, but also that, okay, maybe this is going to have a different ending. You know, I couldn't fix this with my father, but I can probably fix it with this guy. I get a do over, I get a second chance, Mm -hmm. which as you can imagine, often does not work out that way. It doesn't work out very well. Right. Um, and uh, some other things that I see are, um, I would say, one of, the, one of the biggest reasons that a woman may not get out of, let's say, a bad relationship. Okay, so something that uh, isn't working, and I see this in men too. Yeah. But, uh, there's, a, there's, there's a sense of dread around the feeling that's going to come up if they're alone or if they're having to cope with loneliness. There's a lot of distress around some of the difficult emotions that come up um, when you don't have a partner or with just that loss of that relationship. And so they would do everything possible to prevent that loss from happening. Um, So they would twist themselves into pretzels, making changes or trying to help their partner, trying to, um, you know, change things, yet it's not, it's not working and they're not understanding why, but they're just thinking, but I just don't want to be alone. I just can't handle that. So they may just not have the ability to self soothe um, or calm themselves or understand that, Hey, it's okay. It's all right to feel a little sad. It's temporary. It's not going to last forever. Um, So those, those things I would say were very, you know, common things that I would see. Yes. And, I would say the other thing would be um, a woman who unfortunately is very manipulated by a guy who um, maybe has a personality disorder, narcissism, um, or they're doing things that are making the woman feel like she's the one who's crazy or she's the one in the relationship that has the problem. Um, When, you know, to me, it's clearly that this 
this guy is doing these things to make this woman feel, um, you know, that she's the one with the problem. He's turning it around on her, um, or he's not owning or admitting his own, um, let's say, negative communication patterns. And he's not realizing that he's the one who's really contributing to this, or that it's both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll see, I'll see that as well. And sometimes I think these, the, the women are like in denial about mm-hmm. it. Like they just can't, they just can't see it. They know something's wrong, but they can't really put their finger on it. Um, and again, that could just be a familiarity, uh, from long ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Gaslighting, you know, a form of <laughs> gaslighting that we sometimes call it, you know, we talk about attachment security, you know, being a safe haven and a secure base. And, you know, in childhood, that's our parent, hopefully. And in adulthood, it's our partner. And, you know, I think with, you know, EFT and some of the things that you mentioned that you're trained in, um, it, there is a lot about safety, isn't there, you know, and how a person feels safe or doesn't feel safe. And I know, um, some discussion in that model too about primary and secondary affect where we put something out there, but really underneath it's something much more vulnerable. I wonder if you, a feeling, you know, where, okay, so we put out anger or jealousy, but underneath there's, there's really um, possibly an attachment need or some other deeper emotion being triggered. Any thoughts about any of that in your work? Um, when I, whether well, if I'm working with couples, I'm certainly, you know, trying to do that. Absolutely. Because yes, there's defensive emotions that come up and then there's the primary underlying emotion, which is usually a vulnerable one. And that usually is related to, um, the trigger, what set them off, what they thought, what's their, you know, the cognitive, what we call the cognitive appraisal of it, um, what it said to them. And a lot of times with that, they're touching on something that is, you know, from their early experiences. So it's almost like I slow down the process enough for them to start to connect these dots. Um, and then they start to, you know, talk about that with their partner. And it, and it creates that sense of safety when they can do that. So in what I do, if I have, a, a, a let's say, an individual that I'm seeing, so they're not there with their partner, um, or what I also emphasize certainly in, in the book is, um, for them to start to become aware on their own, how they can self-reflect thoughts, what usually triggers them, what happens in those moments, what do they say to themselves, what are the underlying feelings, and then what they, what they do, what we call kind of the protesting behavior, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Uh, so what they do in those, in those moments, and trying to determine is, you know, is, is it healthy, is it not healthy, um, do they need to communicate it? So even if they're dating, so even if they have someone in their life that maybe they just started uh, dating and they're starting to see that, oh, this person, you know, sometimes they call me and they're consistent, but then other times they, they seem to disappear for days. I don't hear from them. And then when they do that, um, I get really anxious. And then I start worrying, is there something wrong with me? And um, you know, I try to text them 10 times and I'm really, I can't concentrate on anything. And so they go into their, their own attachment distress with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want people to kind of figure those things out, but then they have to communicate it. They have to assert themselves 
whether it's with their partner or even if it's someone that they're just getting to know in a, in a dating type of a situation. So I want them to be assertive about it. I want them to talk about and just say something like, you know, um, sometimes you call and that's, and that's great and I really like that, but then I don't hear from you for days. And when I don't hear from you, you know, it, it doesn't really feel good to me. See, and they don't have to go like, you don't, they don't have to like freak the person out you know, with, um, you know, talking about like deep rooted attachment fears. They don't have to go to that, but they can kind of just say what's going on. It doesn't make me feel good. Um, and, you know, it makes me wonder like, hey, are you really, you know, what's happening with us? Are you really serious? Um, I don't really know what's going on. And, and I'm, I don't really like that. I don't like to live my life that way. Um, so they communicate it. They talk about it. They're able to say what's going on with them and they're able to share it with somebody. And that person, you know, is either going to uh, do something to make you feel safe and make you feel secure, or they're going to ignore you, let's say, and they're going to go, well, I don't really care. You know, it doesn't. And then they make you feel unsafe, essentially. And then you have a decision to make. You can say, all right, I'm going to try harder, which probably isn't the best thing to do. Or, all right, I'm going to, you know, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe someone else is better for me. You know, maybe this person isn't really willing to meet my, you know, meet my needs here, or maybe they're, they don't want to respond to my feelings when I share them. So rather than up the ante and try harder, like, oh, I'm going to change them. <laughs> That's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to think, I don't want people to think I can change somebody. I want them to really listen to the response and the reaction they're getting. Mm -hmm. um, they're with someone, if, if they're looking to make a long-term choice with a partner and commit to somebody, um, if you start to see early on the person disregards your feelings and disregards your hurt, your pain, um, what's bothering you, I want you to file that away and tell yourself, huh, you know, maybe this person isn't right for me. You know, maybe they don't want to or unwilling to, or maybe they can't. Um, they don't want to work on it. They don't want to show a willingness to work on it. Again, they don't have to have the perfect answer, but they have to show they care. They have mm -hmm. to show, oh, I don't want you to feel that way. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize when I, you know, when I disappeared and didn't call for a few days that you, that really made you nervous or upset. You're going to at least want them to, to show that they care about what's happening to you. Mm -hmm. And so the mistake is often made when a, when a woman or a man for that matter tries harder, they, they try to do more or be different or um, get the person to respond. And they try all these strategies that end up, you know, making it worse and usually just prolong somebody's suffering when they probably just need to say, okay, maybe this isn't the partner for me. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Dr. Marnie Feuerman about how our attachment history impacts our partner choices. Part two will be published Tuesday, July 9th at noon Eastern. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchatic.org, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchatic.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.